Uh, in light of this being a Sunday where we're dedicating children to the Lord, we are uh, pausing from our series in Isaiah to consider um, what God would have us to consider on a day of such importance. So if you would open to Matthew chapter 12, we'll be reading verses 46 to 50. If you're using the Bible that looks like this in the rack in front of you, it's on page 818. Page 818, Matthew 12, 46 to 50. Please stand for the reading of God's word. The concluding of the reading, I'll announce that this is God's word, and if it's in your heart, you'll be able to respond saying, thanks be to God. Matthew 12, 46 to 50. While Jesus was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. And he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother, and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hands toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother and sister, is my brother and sister and mother. This is God's word. Thanks Thanks be to God. You can be seated as we pray. We ask, Father, that you would use your spirit in our hearts, quicken them, shape them by this word, which you've spoken. Help us to hear it well, in Christ's name, amen. Well, I think if you were to make a list of the worst possible Mother's Day passages in all the Bible this passage would make the list. Jesus' own mother coming to him, asking to speak to him, and he says, nope, you want to know who my true mother and brother and sisters are? It's these people right here. Happy Mother's Day, Mary. (laughs) But it's often the case that the text or that the truth that we think we want to hear is not the truth that we need to hear. Oftentimes, it's the counselor who causes us to think of things in a very different way than what we're expecting is the counselor that's the most beneficial to us. And it's often when God's word comes and says something that we're not expecting to hear, that challenges what we think we need to hear, that it's most beneficial. And so this is a bit of a subversive message this morning, a holy subversiveness. It's going to take certain assumptions and ways of thinking and challenge us. But in doing that work, I think it will be a very powerful and apropos message for us on this Mother's Day. Now, I will say I did not choose this passage in light of it being Mother's Day, but rather in light of this being a Sunday when we're dedicating children to the Lord and need to be thinking about that topic. But there is enough overlap, obviously, between those two that I think the point still stands. Now, as I move through the sermon, the first half of the sermon... 
I'm going to be just making four observations about the passage, four observations that I think are foundational. And then the second half of the sermon, we're going to look at five implications of the passage. So four observations followed by five implications. And so let's begin by looking closely at this passage. And the first observation is that Jesus values the nuclear family. Jesus values the nuclear family. If the Bible was some anti-family tract, and we came along and read this passage, it would actually not have the same punch and power. If Jesus spent most of his ministry degrading the, the family, well, this passage wouldn't read the same way. If you take some dude who doesn't know the difference between a blind hem and a rolled hem, and he tells you, ah, tailors aren't important, you're like, eh, okay. But if there's somebody who values the distinction between a ginger shears and a fisker shears, and they tell you something about a tailor, well, it carries a different kind of weight. And Jesus values the nuclear family. We see that throughout Scripture when the, the triune God creates the family as the first and foundational unit for society. And then when he gives the Ten Commandments, three of them are aimed largely at protecting the family. Jesus in his teaching underscores this. We think of Matthew 19 where he speaks so boldly and profoundly against divorce. And of course you can think of passages like in Ephesians and Colossians where there's extended instruction given about how we are to function as a family and the care and priority we're to give to our nuclear family. But I don't think, I don't think this is seen anywhere with greater clarity than in John 19. Where Jesus is hanging in agony on the cross. Fighting for every breath. Bearing the weight of the judgment we deserve on his own shoulders so that we could be forgiven. The whole course of history in that moment, as God's wrath, the sins of the whole world, inverted and placed upon Jesus' soul, and he's fulfilling the very things he's been called to do from eternity past, and he's gasping for breath, and he uses some of that final breath to look at his human mother, Mary, and tell his closest disciple, John, to care for him, or to care for her, and her for him like a son. Jesus values the nuclear family. But observation number two, Jesus prioritizes the true family of God. Jesus prioritizes the true family of God. This, this passage juxtaposes his human family coming to him, calling for him, and what he'll describe as 
those who are his disciples there doing the will of the Father. In the room, listening to him as his true and more substantial, more, more profound family. You see, as important as the, the nuclear, the human family is, it was always designed to point forward to something more profound. You think of uh, you know, an architect when he's creating this great building, he'll, he'll create a scale model of it that you can display you know, in the office or whatever. That's a bit what the nuclear family is. It's there, it's beautiful, it's great, you love to look at it, but it's only there to create a longing to, to, to show us a way to something even bigger and more profound. Certainly, Jesus is bringing our attention to that right here in how he treats his family coming to ask for him and how he leverages that moment. It's pretty plain. It's reiterated again in his teaching in Matthew 22 when he talks about marriage and how marriage is something that's just for this earth and it's not something for the eternal kingdom. And it's there in Ephesians 5 when after eloquently calling husbands and wives to behave in a certain way, the Apostle Paul says, this is actually a mystery that is pointing forward to Christ and the church, an eternal relationship that we'll have. So even as Jesus values the nuclear family, he is clearly here prioritizing the true family of God. Third observation of this passage. This scene reveals the surprising identity of one who is right with God. This scene reveals the surprising identity of one who is right with God. I talked about this passage being subversive. It's subversive, subversive in what it's teaching us about what family really matters or is the most important. But it's also subversive in challenging our thinking of what makes one right with God. It's something all of us at some level, even if we're kind of more secular, we might not say right with God, but what makes somebody righteous, a, a good person? We all have our kind of standards of what that is. Maybe, maybe it's, it's uh, somebody who, who kind of thinks the right things and does the right things, right? That's, that tends to be how we think about it, based on what positions you hold and how you act. Whoever is the standard of that time or in your culture, in your group of what is right, well, those, those, are, the, those are the good people. So if our society says this is the right way to think and these are the good things to do, then the people who we respect and admire are the people who think like that and do that. In fact, so much so that anybody who wants to ascend to a position of prominence or importance in business or in politics is going to start adopting this right way of thinking and this right way of acting so that they can achieve that same stature, right? These good men, good women, 
The Pharisees would have been such people in Jesus' day. They were people who labored to keep the law. And they thought right about things and they did the right thing. And so they were the ones who carried power and they were respected and they had influence. The scene here at the end of chapter 12 comes at the, it doesn't stand alone, it comes at the end of a series of scenes and at the beginning of chapter 12, you see a handful of conflicts between Jesus and the Pharisees, where the Pharisees are rejecting Jesus and his teachings. And in light of that, Jesus begins, or actually I think Matthew tells a series of stories where Jesus is challenging our understanding of what makes one right with God. The people you think are right with God might not be. And though each one of those vignettes kind of brings a different angle and nuance to things, the crux of it, they're all looking at what do you do with Jesus? What do you do with Jesus and his teaching? The Pharisees were rejecting Jesus and his teaching. And so though it would have seemed that they were the ones who were right with God, the ones who were respectable and good, Jesus is here undercutting that by saying, even if you bring it down to the level of family, just being part of my family isn't enough. What we need is to be people who are my disciples, who are gathered here, listening to my word and doing the will of the Father. And we'll see there's a strong overlap between doing the will of the Father and those who are gathered in the room listening to his teaching. So what makes one right with God now, there's, there's a lot the Bible says about these things, and a lot of what the Bible says is very important. We've talked before about what Jesus did on the cross for us. We, we can't be right with God apart from Jesus' work on the cross and our confidence in that, where he bears our sin and gives us his righteousness. The Bible talks a lot about faith and repentance, and we've talked about those things in this church. But here in this passage, the thing that is being brought home with great power and great force is that what we do with Jesus is everything. How we're oriented to Jesus. Are we his disciples, sitting at his feet, listening to him, doing the will of the Father? That's what makes us right with God. It's all about our orientation to King Jesus. The fourth observation is that the contrast of position and posture is important. The contrast of position and posture is important. Notice how this story is told in a way that compares Mary and his brothers with his disciples. 
So think about the position of Mary and the brothers. They're outside, it says, instead of inside, listening to his teaching and following him. Think of their posture. Our passage says, while he was still speaking, his mothers and brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. Yeah, Jesus, there might be some important things you have to say, but we have some things we need to say to you. Now we can think of this story sympathetically. You know, Jesus was a busy person, had much ministry to do. And his family had other things they needed to do. And sometimes they just needed to come and talk to Jesus about something. Maybe it was urgent. We don't know. We're not told what it was. And they come and there's so many people around Jesus. They can't get inside. They're stuck outside. And so they just send somebody. Go tell Jesus. And we're not even telling them what to do. We're just asking. You can kind of read it sympathetically. But Jesus vital message that he's bringing during his earthly ministry is not a message just for the world out there. It was a message that was every bit as important for his own family. And his family, as his family, they should have been sitting at the, at the closest seat to the front, wanting to hear what Jesus was saying, hanging on his every word, saying, please teach me, please shape me. But instead, they're outside, interrupting his teaching, asking to speak to him. You think out of, that must have caused Jesus' heart to ache. He valued family. He would have loved his family dearly. All his younger brothers and sisters. He'd, grown, he'd known them since they were born. He'd probably cleaned their bums. And now they're not even sitting in the room when he's telling them the greatest news that could ever be told. Look at the contrast of position. Outside. Inside. Inside, sitting, listening to Jesus as disciples. Look at the contrast of posture. Coming and asking Jesus. I have some things I need you to tend to. Versus sitting and listening to his teaching, to his speaking. Now, if you read the rest of the scriptures about Mary, it seems pretty clear that she was somebody who understood who Jesus was and learned from him, was shaped by him. Eventually, two of his brothers would come to be faithful followers of him, James and Jude. They wrote two of the New Testament books that shaped the church. But at this point, at this point in the story, and the way this is being 
told by Matthew, it's making clear that there's something that's off here that's causing Jesus' heart to ache. When we talk about the posture of his followers, I said sitting and listening to his words, you read, he says, he, 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 so as his heart aches, his, his family comes and they're calling him to, to interrupt his teaching and go attend to them. And he stops, he's like, no, no, these people right here. He holds out his hands to the disciples who are sitting there in the room listening to him. He says, these are the people who are my brothers and sisters and mother. And then he adds, those who do the will of my Father in heaven. Now, there is much that could be said about what the will of the Father in heaven is, but certainly central to that is listening to the Son. In Matthew 17, the Father has a rare occasion to speak clearly to the disciples on the mountain of transfiguration. And all he says to them is, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And as we know from how Jesus handled the scriptures, the whole message of the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus, the Messiah, who we should be sitting and hearing from him. So the heart posture of those who truly belong to the family of God, sitting at the feet of Jesus, drawing near to him, listening. You think the other well-known story of the two sisters, Martha and Mary, right? Martha's busy, like Jesus' family. I got things to do. I mean, Jesus is, Jesus is our son. We got to be busy about this and this and this. If he's going to be able to do that, And then there's Mary, this time Mary, Martha's sister, not Mary, Jesus' mother, who's sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening. And Jesus makes clear there again, Mary's chosen the better way. What is our heart posture? What is our position? Are we inside, listening? Or are we outside, busy with other things, occasionally coming and asking Jesus? Contrast of position and posture is important. So those are our four observations that hopefully kind of put flesh on this text, help us know what's going on in this passage. So from there, I want to draw out five implications for us. And uh, the first three implications I'm going to frame as questions. And then we'll get in the third, fourth, and fifth of the last question and the final two points. Really think a little bit more carefully about parenting, but this obviously has implications for all of us. So the first implication, the first question, what gives us confidence in our right standing with God? What gives us confidence in our right standing with God? In other words, if the most important thing in the world is that I stand right before the God, the creator of the the world, the judge, What is my basis for confidence that I stand right with him? Is it that these right ways of thinking that our cultures decide is we need to think like this and right ways of behaving that our culture said these are what good people do. I I do those things. So my friends, my peers, my social media account thinks I'm doing great. Great. 
Is that our basis for confidence? Or maybe it's a little bit more localized to the church. What are the things that this church says? If you do these things, you're a good person. I'm going to do those things. Check, check, check. What gives us confidence in our right standing with God? What gives you confidence in your right standing with God? I grew up in a good Christian home. My parents or my grandparents are good Christians. And I'm a Christian too, just like my mom. This passage would press us to say our confidence should come from our relation to Jesus. Now, as I said, there's a whole back, back story within, within the scriptures about why that's true, because of what Jesus came to do to bear our sins so that we could be forgiven and reconciled to our Father. But here in this passage, it's just saying, are you sitting at Jesus' feet? Are you listening to him? Are you letting him shape you? I don't, it doesn't matter how good of a mom you've been. I did it all right. No, it matters. That's, that's a great thing. We, motherhood is a, is, a, is a great gift, and to do that well is a blessing, but that's not the basis of our right standing with God. And so if you feel like you failed as a mom or that you're failing as a mom, it's okay. We're, are you sitting at the feet of Jesus like a bunch of other sinners saying, this is what I need. Teach me. Shape me. What gives us confidence in our right standing with God? Second implication. What is our core family identity? When you think of who you are, do you think I'm a Seward? I'm a Secchi. I'm a Laidlaw. Or fill in the blank, obviously. Or do you think I belong to God? This is really important because Many of the aches that we feel in our heart are aches for identity and worth and meaning, significance that comes from our earthly family. So there are people listening to this in this room or elsewhere who ache to be a mom and aren't. who ache to be married so they can have a family and aren't, who ache because they were married and it came undone, and they feel like it was lost, who ache because they look at their children who are now grown, who aren't walking with the Lord, maybe who are rebellious, 
struggling in different ways and they feel like I haven't done what I should have done. My family's broken. Who ache because our own families that we want to have those strong bonds with our parents, our siblings, it's been fractured and jostled so that it's off kilter and maybe permanently so, maybe just temporarily so, but we ache for those things. It's a right and natural aching. It's a God-given ache. But if we make it our purpose to chase those things, we'll never find true satisfaction. We need to know in a more profound way that we belong to an abiding, lasting family that has God as the Father, that we've entered into that because of who Christ is, that our mother and our brothers and our sisters are part of this community fallen and fledgling as it itself is on this side of eternity, but is going to be built into something beautiful and perfect and lasting and abiding. And that is where my truest and most profound family identity is for us who are chasing all these other things that we think that is ultimately what family is. No. What's your heaven? Is your heaven, finally I get my nuclear family back together? And we get to experience what I was hoping it would be. Or is your heaven, hey, I'm not looking at this scale model. That's not what it is. I'm going to step outside and see the beautiful, grand building that God, the architect, is building. That's what I get to be a part of. Forever and into eternity. It's an important question, not just for those whose hearts ache, who are longing or chasing something. It's also a key question for people who feel like, I'm feeling pretty good. Being a mom or a dad or a grandparent is pretty rewarding. I like how my kids are turning out. This is nice. And we can unwittingly construct an idol so that The model which was supposed to just point us to something becomes the end-all, be-all. And we find our worth and our righteousness and our significance in this. And what happens to idols is that eventually, in God's grace... They come toppling down and crush us to wean us off of the idol and onto what really matters. I am not saying that we should not prioritize family, that we shouldn't give attention to that. God in his word, as I've said, talks a lot about that, but I'm talking about core identity. The first priority in terms of how we see ourselves In Christ, the eternally family that's ours. So the second implication was the question, what is your core family identity? And the third then, which starts to bring this to bear on parenting, what righteousness do we want most for our kids? What righteousness do we want most for our kids? Talked about a subversive passage, that it subverts how we think about family 
And it subverts how we think about our right standing with God. So has it subverted us enough in those two areas that as we think about our parents, our our role as parents, we think primarily about wanting our kids to have a right standing with God so that they're part of his eternal family. Um, we, we have a big task as parents. There's just a lot that we need to do. We have a certain responsibility, all parents, of just kind of helping our kids mature. Potty training them. You're not a good parent if you're like, well, all I want is you to be right with God, so teach yourself how to. Like, no. Like, there's responsibilities we have, right? We need to grow up and mature. There's a certain responsibility to just teach basic courtesy and manners. You don't have to be a Christian to think that. Maybe some basic bar level of success is, you know, we want our kids to be law-abiding, functioning members of society, right? Like, there's certain obligations we have. And those aren't wrong, they're not bad, and we we could explain more why those are right things scripturally. But at our core, what is it that we want most for our children. How do we think of how do we think of the right standing, the righteousness we want for them? Because we can we can hoist all sorts of stuff onto our children's shoulders that you need to be this and this and this and this because it reflects on me and because it's what I value. And so you need to have this, this, and this as well on you. But at the end of the day, we need to be thinking of Are we orienting them to Jesus? Are we driving them so that they're inside the room, sitting at his feet, near to him, hanging on his words, walking in the light of him? You guys know the phrase, mini-me, right? There's some kids who are clear mini-me, the parent and the child. And sometimes it can be maddening because your own worst traits get magnified and you're like, oh, grandparents' revenge, right? <laughs> but there's also, a, there's also a satisfaction that comes from that. And sometimes it's the very thing we're, we're wanting. I want a mini-me. I want, I want Sewards to grow up as Sewards. I value this and this and this. You know what Christian means? Mini-Christ. Don't raise mini-me's. Raise mini-Christ's. Christians who aren't sitting at your feet learning everything you know about sports or calculus or entrepreneurial ship. However you say that. (laughs) No. I want them sitting at Jesus' feet learning from him. So in light of that last question, my my last two implications aren't questions, but they're they're steps we should take if if we answer that question correctly. So my, my fourth implication is prioritize the family of God. Prioritize the family of God. Notice I did not say 
attend the church service most Sundays on the, of the month. He said, prioritize the family of God. Your kids can see if church is something that's like right here, right? You're not just showing up, but, but your friendships and your relationships are here. You're, you're in other people's homes. They're in your homes. You're giving yourself to the good of, of, of what that body is seeking, which is ultimately what Christ is telling us to pursue. Prioritizing the family of God. But prioritizing the family of God, I, I just want to just give kind of two real specific applications from that. One is, when we're on vacation, we should be in church. Your kids will notice if you skip church when you're on vacation. And it's great we have these live stream services so that if you miss a service, you don't have to miss what God's saying to the church body because we're all hearing that together and that's important. But I'd say, find a local church body and meet with those believers and tell your kids, communicate to them, hey, we're part of a body here. It spans the globe. A second implication I think is just important is your kids will notice if you prioritize their extracurricular activities over the local church. They'll pick up on that, and they'll see what you value. But, but this idea of prioritizing God's family goes beyond just kind of uh, our actions, but also even our attitudes. So on this side of eternity, the local church is flawed, and it's filled with sinful people, and, and we're, we're growing in Christ's righteousness. We need to repent and keep growing in that, but we're still going to mess up. And so are you somebody who is just constantly embittered about the church? The ride home is complaining about this and that. This person treated me like this. This sermon was off in this way. This song wasn't sung the right way or whatever it would be. Bouncing from church to church because there's never quite a church that's just right for you and your family. That's not how we treat family, is it? We bear with one another. We grow together. So your own heart towards the church is going to be contagious. Your attitude. So prioritize the family of God. And the last thing is just say Christian parenting is about fostering a posture and a relationship. Christian parenting is about fostering a posture and a relationship. What I mean, like all the different things we could be trying to be about as parents... What's most important is shaping their heart. Drawing them to Jesus, pointing them to him as they sit at his feet, learning and listening from him. So that means that parenting isn't primarily about downloading information like there's some hard drive and if I just, okay, I've done a good job. My, parent, my, my kids will say, don't lecture me, dad, and there's certain issues with that, kids, but um, I, I'm not just trying to download information to them. I'm trying to shape a heart. That's my task. Similarly, we're not just trying to modify behavior. If you give a dog, if you can train a dog, right, give them rewards when they do the right thing and give them a negative consequence when they do the wrong thing and pretty soon they're house trained and stay down when the company comes over and, you know, is that what we're about as parents? That's not ultimately. We have to do a little bit of that. But ultimately, we're about cultivating a posture, 
where they draw near to Jesus and sit at his feet. It's about shaping the heart. So I started this sermon saying how this was not maybe the ideal Mother's Day uh, text, passage. But then I said how actually in its subversiveness, it might be just what we need to hear. I I think it's important for us who come here with an ache and a longing today because Mother's Day exposes certain things we long for we don't have. It's a word that has subverted us as Christian parents or grandparents or even others who are just trying to shape the next generation, challenging us how we think about what righteousness is and what family is. It challenges moms. It's good, good in its subversiveness. Like like the counselor who says, well, we're thinking about motherhood. Here's a totally different angle that we need to be thinking about. And so the holy subversive word has spoken to us this morning and I hope it shapes us. Let's pray. Father, take this passage and the truths therein and shape us more and more into the image of your son. May we sit at his feet, look to him with sincerity and say, have thine own way, Lord. Amen.